0: Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that has decided to rename our show the Great Lightly Literary Podcast Commission for Higher Culture and the Promotion of Civilization. We're now seeking funds to promote our noble and moral endeavor of book club discussion. Amanda, just got to update the feed.
1: Yep. Yep. Um, Donations from like everybody, whether you, um, you know, are a missionary um, mm-hmm. Who believes in only certain types of books? Um, That's right. Being granted um, particular status. You oh know? God, do we um, are we switching to
0: a Bible club a <laughs> podcast or which, which? You said missionary, so I just assumed we're going. We're not going like Quran or Buddhist, Buddhist sattva. or I'm not sure what other texts we could dig into. Um, right? Are right. we taking funds from European sovereigns as well? Whomever oh. among them are left.
1: Of course. Yes. Seeking all funds. We don't
0: turn anyone down here for the Great uh, Enlightenment Podcast. I forgot all the adjectives. Should we throw in any other adjectives (laughs) or nouns? Did I miss any? Upstanding maybe is a good one. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. The Mm -hmm. Upstanding Podcast Commission for Greater Mm -hmm. Benefits of Higher Culture and Science. We should probably throw in Scientific Endeavors.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. We're here to perform science today, and if you have no idea what we're talking about, <laughs> that makes sense, as <laughs> because you've stumbled upon a book club episode, which are our analytical deep dive episodes. This book club episode will be on the first part, roughly the first half of the historical um, nonfiction account King Leopold's Ghost, which is by Adam. What did we grant? Hoxchild. 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 Yeah, Hawkschild. Hawkschild, which I'll look up the pronunciation for at some point in a YouTube video. (laughs) You know, I'll I'll get that. I'll get to it when I, you know, find the time. We have social media accounts if you could follow us. It benefits us a ton and also helps you keep up with what we're doing, the books we're covering, and just in general, see what we've got going on. On Instagram and Facebook, we have an account at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is just all one word, so it's easy to find and follow. And yeah, check us out there for book updates, the reading schedule, the picks that we have coming up. So if a book that we're currently covering doesn't interest you, you can always look ahead and plan ahead, do some reading with us. A book club episode, which you again have stumbled upon, will be a spoiler-filled discussion. It's going to be analytical and specific, so we'll be diving into the first half of this historical account. Again, King Leopold's Ghost is the name of it. So I didn't make it all the way, Amanda, but you read through part one, right? Yes. I made it dead halfway. So I, I didn't, because I, yeah, I thought last night I might be able to push through, but I didn't make it. So it's okay. You can feel free to discuss anything from part yeah. one, which is called Walking Into Fire. Right? Yep. All right. Did I miss anything
1: critical at the end there? Uh, I don't think so. It's, uh yeah, it's pretty, pretty dry reading. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's interesting. Now, we'll dig into that in a second with some quotes, but yes, it's been... I found it weirdly to read kind of quickly, but I also think that there are times when I when my brain is skimming without knowing it. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting because yep. it's engaging, and I think the writing is is good, but also it's like I think my brain just kind of skims. Like when I sense that a paragraph is just going to be a long... Exploratory kind of digression I think my brain just kind of goes into skim mode And I'm like oh yeah I get the gist of this Like oh okay I see what the point of this is uh, Let's mm-hmm. briefly summarize the work Because I did choose it This is a pick from me uh, We try and balance some nonfiction on the pod It's super pretty fiction heavy But every two books or uh, Yeah every every three books I'd say I try and pick one of those to be uh, nonfiction. This one had been on my shelf a while I'd actually read the first couple chapters before But like a couple of heavier more dense reads Just put it down not because it was uninteresting or not well done but just because it lost my attention and I don't know I just wasn't ready for such a you know in-depth historical exploration and also it's I don't know it's a really intense topic that I knew a little bit about from history classes and also conveniently enough for this like heart of darkness high school studies <laughs> and so it's like I had known really slight facts about the Belgian occupation colonization of the Congo and some of the atrocities that happened but this is of course like an incredibly thorough investigative account of that it's you know by a famous historian who put all of his investigative research efforts into kind of exploring this yeah A horrific incident i guess you'd say i don't know if we can call it an incident because it lasted like 40 years or 30 years but it was an ongoing colonization effort of yeah the congo by mostly focuses on belgium but there are some other countries in here too like france and england but definitely the focus is on the belgian sovereign and what happened in the congo is that Mm -hmm. an accurate summary i don't maybe i spoiled the first segment (laughs)
1: yeah that's yeah
0: Excellent. And again, we'll be spoiling the first part, which Amanda has finished, and I just made it. I think that's through chapter 10, right? Or 11?
1: Yeah, through chapter 11. Gotcha. And 11. I read through mm-hmm.
0: nine, because that took me to oh, exactly halfway, so... Close, but not quite this time for me I've been behind, I had some other things going on Podcast listeners, you don't need to know all that, let's just dive in Let's get to it uh, <laughs> Any content warnings, except for the obvious atroci- atrocities That I had mentioned So, there's a racist language, though Not in the way that a 2023 listener would expect It's mostly the old colonial scientific jargon Around describing people as animals That kind of thing uh, There's obviously also racist violence, abuse um, all ki- I mean, of any kind you can imagine, really I don't, I don't even think we need to do the the listing. Uh, Colonialism and exploitation therein. Slavery is also a pretty prominent idea and feature. Did I miss anything?
1: I don't think so. I think you got it.
0: That covers the big ones for sure. And as always, we will, we're not really certain what will come up in terms of quotes and specifics in the discussion. So we're not timestamping any of those. We're just giving a blanket kind of content warning for the podcast. So there's that. And if that stuff is is not what you're listening for right now feel free to pause come back later or just or just pause in general no one uh no one has to dive into these things and it is grim indeed so let's get to it amanda first segment is the 60 second summary challenge which is when each of us gets 60 seconds on the clock to summarize the book at least what we've read of it thus far this is just to recap for the listener in general and also give us kind of a goofy little challenge to see what we can remember and cover in that amount of time (laughs) Uh, let's have you go first. Because you made it further, so I want to see if sure. if I miss anything critical. Um, any questions before I uh, before I time you?
1: Nope, I think
0: I am good. Okay, and I think I think I'm going to give up. I was editing a podcast recently. This is a little little behind the scenes for you listeners. I think I'm not going to do the 30 and 10 second interruptions if that's okay. I, it just makes sure. it just kind of sounds weird when I played it back. But I'll count yeah. you down, and then at one minute I will uh, I will stop you. Are you ready? Sounds good. I'm ready. All right, you can start in
1: three, two, one. Uh, so the, uh, there's King Leopold II, who is the second king of Belgium, um, because there's a whole political exploration of that in the, in the book. But, um, he is really obsessed with the idea of, um, getting a colony because he thinks that Belgium needs some more monies, um, because he wants more money. And so he, um... Kind of like realizes that people are going to um, Africa, but they're staying on the coast. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to try to get to the interior. I'm sure there's stuff there. And so he sends an expedition and finally, like, he's, um, but he's not trying to show the interest in it for business reasons. And he's saying that it's a humanitarian effort um, to free the people from the um, slavery amongst themselves and uh, from the Arab countries. And so then he gets support that way and then kind of like weasels his way into getting um, that whole area, the interior, done um, in time. for rubber and ivory. Yeah, <laughs>
0: we'll, we'll, we'll count the rubber and ivory in there. We count that. Yeah. We go a little bit over time on ours. We're generous with our timer.
1: <laughs> Excellent. There's a lot of information in yeah. too. Yeah, it's, it's, like it's difficult. Hard.
0: Kind of a fool's errand to summarize a dense historical research project (laughs) and Mm -hmm. so but no i think yeah that's the main themes for sure i'll try and plug in maybe in mine a couple things that were skipped Uh, any any thoughts before i start i can also time myself (laughs) no problem Oh, you got it Okay three, two, one. Travis can start Begin King Leopold II Is the sovereign of Belgium The the ruler of Belgium He's kind of powerless And because of that Wants to take a massive colony Also Belgium's a really small country So out of the envy Of other colonial powers Like England and France And stuff at the time He pursues the Congo He enlists Stanley I forget Stanley's first name Or last name <laughs> uh, a, a English explorer Who had made himself famous From traveling through Africa And was kind of a blowhard um, He enlists him To help explore and kind of um, map the Congo and decides to take most of that territory through brutal exploitation and basically slavery even though he doesn't call it that. Uh, this takes on moralistic and kind of scientific language where he pretends that's the reasons they're in the Congo, but really he just wants a lot of money. He's always concerned about money and not having enough money. He wants to make money off ivory and other trades. Um, there are people who are skeptical, like Williams, who will talk about and notice the brutality and notice the horrible treatment, but that doesn't really come to much. All European nations agree that this is a good idea, that they need to civilize and Colonize Africa and change it to be more like Europe. And that is a minute. Dang. Nice. Yeah, it's tough. You just miss so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so many interesting yep. figures that I just couldn't. I, I at least wanted to mention Williams, you know.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, the um, Stanley, too, like that's not even his real right name right yeah Yeah.
0: the guy who fought on both sides of the civil war that guy yeah yeah (laughs) the the welshman
1: who claims to be american yes
0: yeah (laughs) who grew up as a kind of an orphan anyway okay we're already diving into the next segment let's get after it (laughs) next segment up so hopefully that provided some some brief overview or clarification i think thematically we hit the big things right
1: yeah i think so
0: Colonists claim they want to help, but they just want resources. This is, well, if you took in a, a world history class, you would not know probably of the horrors and the specificity of the kind of bureaucracy and all that kind of in between. But, you know, you know the broad strokes. Um, When you industrialize you got to destroy other places for their raw goods. It's this is a tale as old as colonial time So yes, anyway, (laughs) Um, and we'll get to some of the characters and unique figures and people committing crimes of uh, against humanity Which was that phrase coined by Williams or did he just use it early? I couldn't tell the way he explained know. it. He basically just said he used it many years before, you know. That's in World War 2, post World War 2, the Nazi trials, people would say that phrase. It was kind of like right. used around then, but Williams used it like 50 years before. Right. Anyhow, let's jump in Uh, Quotes for clarification will be the next segment This is when we each select three quotes from the book so far That we want to discuss in depth Could be things for thematic or style reasons Or just interesting things that we wanted to Give some more detail about and explore Why don't you go first, Amanda? What's the first quote?
1: Uh, Yeah, mine is from the introduction At the very beginning And Let me see Okay Okay the footnote was to a quotation by Mark Twain written the note said when he was part of the worldwide movement against slave labor in the Congo, a practice that had taken five to eight million lives. Worldwide movement? Five to eight million lives? I was startled. Um, I chose this because this is indicative of some of the like writing that I'm not a fan of. Um, mm-hmm. He's utilizing I think understatement here to be just startled <laughs> by mm-hmm. a massive number of lives being lost. Um, and uh, the the questioning there like that, I just, I don't know. Um, so, my, my issue is I um, that uh, with this right so there are some parts of his writing style that I'm a fan of and I-, I actually included um a couple of examples of like what I do like about his writing style but stuff like this where it's um he inserts himself in the text in certain ways this is one example he also um uh makes claims and does some like psychoanalysis on some of the people that I'm just like is this Where's the evidence for that? And you're just, like, jumping to conclusions here, like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: very Freudian stuff going on. <laughs> like, yeah, um, the, the
0: main characters, so to speak, you're Leopold and Stanleys. If they have any sort of turmoil, Stanley for him, it's his kind of distance from women and his issues with courting and marriage and stuff. And for Leopold, it's oh, well, it's myriad things, but among chief among them, his family issues. Like, he doesn't, you know, he resents his daughters and distances himself from those things yeah those things do get significant well i don't know significant attention they get attention enough to matter i guess i'll say that and it definitely becomes part of the narrative that he wants to weave in to kind of to do a portraiture of sorts
1: right and that's uh, like I, i don't mind um those specific examples where he actually, like, gives examples of those things. But, like, when he actually states things like, oh, he's, like, terrified, oh, Stanley is terrified of intimacy and sex. And... And then he just, like, leaves it at that. And then, like, later, like, we see examples of, like, I mean, he's got failed relationships and stuff. But does that necessarily mean the same thing as, you know, being terrified of intimacy?
0: Well, this is where Um, we've got to do, I've at least got to, because I've noticed a couple of those things. Oddly, I thought the chapter he was most opinionated was the Kurtz sort of Heart of Darkness yes. exploration chapter, because he, he weighs in quite heavily, and not in favor of the book, so to speak, but in favor of its kind of literary merit and its honesty and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, were there other topics where you felt his him being heavily opinionated, and I have to do the annoying thing, but it's only right. Did you check in the back to see what foot, because his footnotes or his, um, his research notes, what do we call those? Annotations, whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. Some of them are interesting because he puts commentary with some of them. I
1: haven't looked at it Okay,
0: It It might be worth it, because for a couple of them where he's reaching like that If you can find, maybe he included a reference There are a couple of things in the back where he, like, explains what the book is Or, like, there's one source that he uses a lot where he basically is like Yeah, this person did all this research and I'm relying on his stuff really heavily Here was his thesis, here was the, you know, blah 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 Anyway, and I figured you didn't, we're not scholars here after all (laughs) We're not doing scholarship, we're just reading a book and thinking about it critically But it's like, some of that stuff has been kind of helpful helpful but not I don't I don't think it would clear up the what you're describing though
1: yeah the so the Kurtz chapter um the the Heart of Darkness chapter like that I I was like oh I, I actually kind of like how he asserts his opinions on that because it is um the you know literary analysis and stuff like that it's the the biographical inserts that i'm just kind of like oh they i mean you're not you're not a psychologist right like mm-hmm. <laughs> just yeah. present me with the information and i can make my own conclusions and also making those statements are unnecessary when you already have examples given of those things like i can make my own conclusions based on, on yeah facts. well i wonder if then yeah i wonder i the. I think,
0: but it's the historian's job to make some, I mean, if I I suppose he wouldn't have to write it as a narrative at all in that case, you know, like he would, he could just give you the journals. I I guess the other counterpoint to that would be like, again, I wonder if in the back, a lot of what he's citing are personal journals and like entries Mm -hmm. by, we can just focus on Stanley, I guess. And so it's like, I mean, at some point. You can either go look those up yourself, like, you are not a professional historian and, like, don't have the time. Why would you ever do that? <laughs> you being, like, an abstract you, not you, Amanda, but just, right. like, a person. Right, right. And so it's, like, why would a person ever go do that? I mean, that, but, you know, we're putting our trust in the historian, basically. It's, it's the risk of any historian. Right. It's, like, they have to tell, try and cohesively argue something, put a narrative together, Um and yeah, I just wonder, I don't know, it's good to wonder that, It's but the unfortunate thing is like, we're not in an undergrad class, we don't have an afternoon to be like, yeah, I guess I will go read Stanley's journals wherever they're collected. <laughs> I do Damn. have to imagine though, given his sourcing, at least how often he quotes Stanley's like accounts and journals and stuff, that he has some backing on that, but you're right, it raises questions that, I mean, he just wants us to assume that his interpretation is good enough to, you know to swing us through the story and so such it yeah. is it, it is
1: it's what what i think really bothers me about it is is that it's an attempt to be like a narrative mm-hmm. non-fiction but the rest of it does not read as a narrative non-fiction yeah so it's yeah. like just really spotty pieces of like his interpretations of things and trying to give us like a quote, like character analysis. Yeah. But then not treating the rest of the book as though it were more like, I guess maybe I'm, I'm spoiled with like Eric Larson's stuff, but like, <laughs> but yeah. you know,
0: yeah, a real, <laughs> right. Attempting to what's, and that's a fascinating comparison. Cause we did the devil in the white city on our mm-hmm. podcast, dig back in the feed for that one listeners. But Uh, Yeah, that's interesting, too, because he makes Larson comparatively speaking makes like much grander assumptions because many of the murders he includes are entirely made up but they're just based right. on you know he has like the architectural layout of that guy's murder uh, house you know or of his you know house of horrors and stuff so it's like he can assume based on where the bodies were discovered and all the devices and mechanisms and hidden rooms that he's like yeah right. okay i'm gonna like invent this scenario even though we know this woman was murdered in this house i'm just gonna literally make up how it happened and so there's big allowances like that yeah i guess that is an interesting way to compare them i hadn't really thought about that as a comparison point but those are two pretty different ways to insert kind of the narrative into history that's definitely true Mm -hmm. and i think yeah i think his narrative work becomes clear like you're describing psychoanalyzing kind of attributing clear motivation to maybe unclear acts and stuff um Mm -hmm. when he's got these characters to focus on basically you're stanley you're leopold you're williams am i missing any those are like the big figures in my mind so far
1: um he does a little bit with um joseph conrad too Um, oh yeah right yeah indeed
0: well let's jump into let's see did i have anything like that i don't think i did (laughs) um i was gonna say i was gonna (laughs) hoping for a segue of like did i pull anything quite like that but i i guess not let's talk about king leopold then let's do some psychoanalyzing of our own shall we
1: yeah, let's do it. <laughs> um,
0: what would your summary be of his motivation so far? It's complicated.
1: Yeah, um, his big motivation is just like money, right, <laughs> and power.
0: <laughs> I-, I thought this quote early, pretty early in the story, unlocked something for me, and I don't think I don't. I'll look for a quote here to see if he interprets it quite as I did. I think I interpret it even more strongly, but. Uh, on page, my page 39, uh, Leopold II is at home, he's sick, things in his family are not going well, etc., etc. all the unusual annoyances, and it reads, In Western Europe, after all, times were fast-changing, and a king's role was not as enjoyable as it had once been. Most annoying to Leopold was that in Belgium, as in surrounding countries, royal authority was gradually giving way to that of an elected parliament. Someone once tried to compliment Leopold by saying that he would make an excellent president of a republic. Scornfully, he turned to his faithful court physician, Jules 3 and asked, what would you say, doctor, if someone greeted you as a great veterinarian? The ruler of a colony would have no parliament to worry about. And so I guess that final line is kind of interpreting why he would make such a You know scornful retort or whatever But I think Mm -hmm. the this idea of Slipping power of lessening Prestige lessening clear authority You know as like a sovereign as a king Combine that with yeah He's from a small country he's watching Every other European power amass Tons of colonies especially Britain like Germany and France and so Combine that with yeah a person who Is is ambitious and Just needs this has this singular Want or desire for this Growth of power I thought that was meaningful. It just showed, and it's you know it's interesting because it's kind of what you were saying. It's a pretty small moment. He dug up, right? He must have like dug that up from the doctor's journals, or I don't I don't know where you would find a quote, you know, like that. I, I didn't check the footnotes on that one, but it yeah. is meaningful in that it can give a slight bit of character nuance to a big historical figure like Leopold. Where it's mm-hmm. like, ah, okay, I can imagine the kind of snark that this waning, f- you know, fading power sovereign would make. It it does give a strong indication of what his the thoughts are and because of his yeah. lessening role and influence like, okay, I'm starting to get a picture. Um, where the quote came from or if it's accurately sourced, like you're right, that's that's a much trickier thing and I can't tell how much he's interpreting or you know if that can be trusted. But I would also say that given the primary sourcing of Leopold's, I don't know like there's a lot of things from official, there's a lot of official statements from like when he did the commission and when he did other acts that we can pretty rightfully assume some of his motivation.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and the, the the backstabbiness and the manipulations and stuff, He's he comes off as quite conniving, which uh, uh, alongside his um, treatment of his daughters, you know, you, you get the idea that he's not really a good guy. Yeah.
0: Well, in terms uh, of the connivingness, too, here's an obvious one. And this is a <clears throat> in terms of historical record and evidence keeping a pretty obvious one. The big contrast, I think, for Hotchild or one of the big ones, one of his you know, slam-dunk pieces of evidence, is the fact that he has public records of Leopold promising all over the place that it's all going to yeah. be free trade. It's all free trade. Yeah. He's, just, he's just trying to help. He's just trying to be a um, facilitator, I guess we'd say. But then every single contract he made people sign from people in the Congo— was like I am taking your land you have no rights to it anymore and anything you trade anything you do <laughs> if you sneeze or fart on this land I have to know about it kind of a kind of contracts and like mm-hmm. so that that kind of contradiction it that's a structural co- condemnation like we don't have to assume much <laughs> or we don't have to like infer much to point out like that is the kind of legal backstabby lie yep. that like it, it doesn't there's no room for interpretation there we can't altruistically interpret why he would have done that like it's a bla- blatant thing so Mm -hmm. that's I would say for Hoschild, like that's if you have something like that then these littler quotes where it's like "Eh, is that rumor is that just somebody is that the doctor like saying mean things after the fact and like misremembering or whatever like as a character portrait because of the grand pieces of evidence because of like the massive blatant record yeah he does often plug in little moments like that yeah which yeah, maybe yeah. that evidence did segue well. I didn't thought about it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Worked well. <laughs> yeah.
0: How about a, another quote for you?
1: Um, so one of the positive things that I like about um, his writing is that sometimes he does. There's a couple of things he does well, which is to um, introduce certain like cultural aspects, and then like comment on them, and also um, by doing certain comparisons that I thought were really well done. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so. Um, on page 16, um, there is a sea sprite myth, um, that the, uh, enslaved Africans who are being shipped across to the, um, the, um, the Americas, uh, come up with because of the, you know, they're just like, uh, they don't know what's going on. So, mm-hmm. um... As the years passed, new myths arose to explain the mysterious objects the strangers brought from land of the dead. A 19th century missionary recorded, for example, an African explanation of what happened when captains descended into the holds of their ships to fetch trading goods like cloth. The Africans believed that these goods came not from the ship itself but from a hole that led into the ocean sea sprites weave this cloth in an oceanic factory and whenever we need cloth the captain goes to this hole and rings a bell the sea sprites hand him up their cloth and the captain then throws in as payment a few dead bodies of black people he has brought from those bad native traders who have bewitched their people and sold them to the white men the myth was not so far from reality for what was slavery in the American South after all, but a system for transforming the labor of black bodies via cotton plantations into cloth. And I was like, that's that, that is what I like to see is the, the bringing about of, of these ideas and then connecting it um to, and making these metaphors and similes and connecting it to these other ideas of, in, in this instance, the, the myth and the, and these beliefs, but they're actually like pretty spot on because that's exactly what is you know metaphorically happening, figuratively happening um, when they do make it to the Americas. Yeah. So that that kind of writing, and it's like when I'm like, okay, yeah, that's 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 good writing. That's what I like to see.
0: Yeah, it is interesting too because both are kind of the role of a. You know, it's, not, it's how historians are on a knife's edge when they write, because <laughs> they have to yeah. do things like that, right? If, if it's just a textbook, you're not going to keep anyone reading, essentially, it's not going to be of yeah. interest. But <laughs> of course, the literary ambitions of historians have to be curbed by, you know, some, some form of truth telling and documenting things honestly and trying to give some kind of full report of of what happened but you're right Mm though moments like that little metaphors or comparison points it's it's helpful it's at least at the very Mm -hmm. least kind of like engaging you know gives us the reader something to contemplate and a means to understand something that's otherwise pretty dense Mm -hmm. that also came up later right weren't there some interviews, or there was some documentation later of how, when meeting with tribal leaders in the Congo, the the white people from Europe would like do little tricks. Didn't they? Wouldn't they like hold little rods or just make their handshake stronger? Ugh, I'm forgetting yeah, the detail. Yeah, they would
1: shock them. That's yeah, what they it was. Would shock them. Yeah, mm-hmm. to
0: make them seem like they could. At some point, they said like We can push trees over. We're so strong. We'll move trees." Mm-hmm. Obviously, the introduction of guns has been that. That's a historical moment of kind of. Intercultural interchange that has been well understood and documented as a that's like a really important cultural crossover that changed, like the entire as they describe in the book, too. It changed the entire human relations there because of how you could essentially control an area of 10 to 20 million people with like 10,000 men with guns, basically. Yeah. Um, so that's also a pretty critical thing in the book, too. Shall we jump to the joke that we started the podcast with? <laughs>
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: Because <laughs> I found this moment hilarious and really insightful, too. Um, I, I will say, yeah, it's funny. And this is maybe I can't tell if there's a compliment or a critique of the book. I None of my quotes are about style because I'm finding it rather frictionless to read. That's why I was intrigued that you brought that up. And like, I'm interested in that because I all of my quotes are just like interesting facts <laughs> that I think are making a compelling kind of thesis or something like a compelling argument. Yeah. But I found his style to be kind of like I'm not even really noticing it. It's kind of like you move from one historical anecdote to another with some argument thrown in to keep it keep things moving <laughs> so yeah and that's
1: it, why i said at the beginning it's pretty dry so yeah, any stylistic yeah. aspects i just i'm like oh okay here we go right um which is why the things that i like I, I really like because the rest of it is is very much just like reading almost like um national geographic in some ways yeah um, not a bad comparison like the, point yeah and, and but then like his some of his attempts at style that fall are just like, I mean, that's when I'm like, uh no. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. keep it to the facts, Hawks Child. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> um, here's here's the about the name change. To obfuscate things still further and give his African operations a name that could serve for a political entity, the Master Impresario created another new cover organization, the International Association of the Congo. This was calculated to sound confusingly similar to the moribund philanthropic, quote unquote, International African Association of crown princes and explorers and then a quote from leopold care must be taken not to let it be obvious that the association of the Congo and the african association are two different things he said to one of his aides the public doesn't grasp that so he literally is you know creating these different names to sow confusion um And then later it talks about how that was important because Congo now to refer to not just a river but an entire territory. When the public did finally start paying attention to this colony in the making, the king reached new heights as an illusionist. He or one of his stagehands managed to open the curtains on a completely different set each time depending on the audience. So yeah, we've got that style coming through again because he's, obviously it's an extended metaphor to like stagecraft and creating a bit of a play, like treating him like a kind of director of a play. I just, the name thing just killed me because it's a classic, I mean it's like a in these times for marketers or even politicians or political entities where it's just like just rebrand you know if things aren't going exactly. well keep this don't change anything <laughs> don't fundamentally question what you're doing just rebrand it and confu- cr- sow a little confusion right create a little confusion uh, what what do they do new coke coke zero coke diet coke what you know coke fusion I don't who knows <laughs> we just make up words and ju- it's just like don't change the product don't you know change your plan or your grand aspirations just change things up and kind of confuse people and people will eventually move on
1: yep and and what's hilarious too is later um when the united states gives oh yeah they're um they're like yeah okay we got you uh leopold we support you they they reference that association with both names in like the same sentence yeah and they just don't even catch it (laughs) in (laughs) their official
0: statement of acknowledgement it's (laughs) like not in this is not a memo or a conversation that was remembered it's their literal formal declaration of you know acknowledgement (laughs) they use both yeah you're right i should have quoted that and said that was definitely the pinnacle of that it was just hilarious to see it in play (laughs) um obviously in real time it's I don't know it's it's like anything you can only laugh at the horrors once it's over kind of like when you see the mechanations right. in from the thousand feet view um, these are obviously like dangerous tactic tactics of obfuscation and this was done to a, a horrific end and everything but still seeing the seeing the mechanisms at play in such an obvious and stupid way is just I don't know it, it is just funny to see the kind of flailing yeah, about how about yeah, for your final yeah. quote what do you got
1: um, I have here another example of something that I like that he does, which is to compare um certain actions by a variety of people to modern day things. So here, um on page one hundred seventeen, um Leopold's actions, he compares it to a venture capitalist, a modern venture capitalist. So this is something that I, I thought that he did well. Um Uh, These concession companies had shareholders, largely, though not entirely Belgian, and interlocking directorates that included many high Congo state officials. But in each of them, the state, which in effect meant Leopold himself, usually kept 50% of the shares. In setting up this structure, Leopold was like the manager of a venture capital syndicate today. He had essentially found a way to attract other people's capital to his investment schemes while he retained half the proceeds. In the end, what with various taxes and fees the companies paid the state... It came to more than half, um, right? And I was just like, "Oh, that helps," you know, to understand that you know these practices. First of all, like these practices are still going on. I mean, minus the the military might that goes behind that, um, but the it, it comes to to question some of the the ethicalness of mm-hmm. like our modern day. Um, economic structures and stuff so I I liked that little little tidbit there and and stuff like that where it makes you think about like oh this is still applied to today just like the the propaganda and stuff like that he he does compare it to you know more modern times as well and and certain actions so it's it's interesting to me and it's and it you know makes me think even harder about like you know the pitfalls of our, our current society
0: yeah, and you're right. I think any, any strong history will do that. It will illuminate current issues in some ways. I mean, obviously, this is also we're just learning about a specific thing but you're right the comparisons are, are fine did you let out a deep sigh when he started comparing them to nazis and stalin in world war 2 <laughs> uh, i'm not that i'm saying stalin was a nazi obviously i'm just saying he he uses both like he talks about the gulags yeah. he talks about stalin's sort of imprisonment programs and mass incarcerations and then he also compare like it's just kind of you just kind of have to i guess as a historian especially i mean granted it depends on the topic but like this is obviously a mass kind of genocide a huge movement of death and exploitation so it's like oh, Okay, I guess we should. <laughs> I guess yeah, we kind of have yeah. to. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um it, yeah. I think that people can make those, you know, comparisons themselves, but yeah. It's whatever.
0: I, I, I don't know. I guess, too, we ju- we're just in an age where there's kind of a joke. I think there's even a term for this, like an Internet term. But it's just sort of like it's the first thing everyone uses in an example to prove a point. <laughs> it's like, can we just yeah. can we just use it for specific things instead of just always saying Nazi or, you know, comparing people to Stalin or Hitler? Like, it, I don't know. Obviously, in terms of world historical events, those two people cannot be kind of downplayed or underestimated. But and so, yeah, in this work, I it was a sigh of just just kind of like okay we have to do this not um of disapproval or i didn't think it was like analytically shallow or something i it was fine the comparisons were fine when he was making them but it was just kind of like yeah you really can't in any grand historical work you just can't escape those comparisons it's just they're just everywhere should we end end, uh quotes on a super down note yeah can't end on an up note can we wouldn't be fitting let's talk about williams here who granted did a great thorough historical job him even though he himself was kind of a compromised guy bit of a liar bit of a braggart and kind of had his own personal issues and stuff but i feel like of course fitting with hoxchild's point of view he doesn't really go in as hard at williams but he does acknowledge that guy's kind of mistakes and his you know his untruths and stuff but he doesn't hammer him you know quite like he hammers the other figures who are exploiters and and colonists and stuff um or colonials. Uh, this is the final paragraph about Williams. Williams' open letter was a cry of outrage that came from the heart. It gained him nothing. It lost him as patron Huntington. It guaranteed that he could never work as he had hoped to bring American blacks to the Congo. It brought him none of the money he always needed, and in the few months he had left before his life in a foreign beach resort, it earned him a little but calumny. Uh, by the time he went to Congo in 1890, close to a thousand Europeans and Americans had visited the territory or worked there. Williams was the only one to speak out fully and passionately and repeatedly about what the others denied or ignored, the years to come would make his words even more prophetic." So it's, it's quite a powerful ending, I thought, and written with some, you're right, some inserts of style and opinion, especially that final bit, which we kind of just have to trust his work as a researcher at that point that like, there must just be no other good accounts of critique from the time. Like this, this seems to be the only one that history has saved, you know, that we have records of, of a person loudly denouncing the project. And then, yeah, of course, for it to come to very little and having learned about Williams and seen his kind of bullet points and everything and that he's clearly and clear-sightedly like noticing all the horrific things and he like notices all the lies and the untruths and all that and then yeah to have it end like that was um yeah it was tough
1: yeah and um this is the one where like the bullet points that he made like it was all stuff that yeah um pages like 110 through 111 Mm -hmm. the bullet points of of what was included in the letter and just like they were all things that later other people would also yeah right point out um just like his insights and stuff but yeah yeah that was that's it's a sad end for somebody who was so passionate about helping others
0: yeah and who had a you know obviously again and he, as he notes the one voice of those people at the time um, this is where his Nazi yeah. comparison comes back I don't know if it's in that chapter but just sort of like the passive complicity of most people where it's like they also I'm sure there are plenty of diaries yep. from the time of white people visiting saying things like you know they really treat the people harshly here oh there was some really I noticed a punishment outside today because of a person who stole some bread or you know whatever the perhaps false accusation but so it's like there's probably tons of uh, observations but none of it is you know clear-eyed and clear-sightedly denouncing it except for Williams apparently um and yeah it did did not take unfortunately shall we move to some motifs any other quotes you want to dig into
1: uh nope that's it excellent
0: yeah those are the points i wanted to hit too let's move to our motifs segment so in part one book clubs we always do a motifs that matter segment each of us has selected one motif could be like a theme a stylistic point an observation something like that and we want to discuss it more broadly do some analysis of what it could mean or how it's been showing up in the text Uh, do you want to go first i feel like i was just going for a while so let's do your motif first
1: Sure. Uh, mine is um, the the references, the allusions to a variety of authors. Sure. Um, yeah. uh, the the most obvious being, of course, Joseph Conrad, the the writer of yeah. um, Heart of Darkness. It's a whole chapter. Um, it is an entire chapter, chapter nine, <laughs> um, which it reads almost more like a literary analysis, um, in in some ways. Um, but also like a, a comparison to like, you know, this is what he writes about in Heart of Darkness. And these are the realities based on that. These are the characters that he bases them on. And this is what happened with those characters. Um, but yeah, he so specifically with Joseph Conrad, he references Heart of Darkness like that whole chapter. But then he also references it like um, two other times, um, both times, the other two times in the introduction itself. Um And he also references Shakespeare. Yeah. Remind Um, me of that one. I don't remember that. Uh, So that's also at the beginning in the introduction, and it's on page four. Um, And it says here, uh, And looming above them all, all these bad guys in the Congo taking advantage, um, above Uh, Looming above them all was King Leopold II. A man as filled with greed and cunning, duplicity and charm as any of the more complex villains of Shakespeare. Hmm. Um, So comparing Leopold to a Shakespearean villain, um, especially in complexity. And then we have um, two... References, maybe even three references, but the two that I remember the most um, are to Mark Twain. But what's interesting about the Mark Twain references is that Mark Twain here is, it, it's not about his writing per se, but about just like him as a person living at that time. And um, he, on page 32 specifically, mm. he um, meets with, or he, let me, let me find a quote real quick for you. Uh, Talking about Stanley, the guy who's actually Welsh, but wants to be American or says he's American. Um, He sometimes implied that he came from New York, sometimes from St. Louis. Mark Twain sent congratulations to his fellow Missourian for finding Livingstone. Um, Classic. Yeah, so Mark Twain is referenced, but as like a person. But, you know, it's interesting that he's, you know... Honing in on Mark Twain specifically, because there's, I mean, like, why? Well, he was kind um, of a
0: famed. Tw- this is, I don't know. It's interesting that he doesn't mention it though. But Twain was kind of a famed anti-colonialist. Like he yes. had, and there's a quote later. Did you pull that one too? Because he does quote Twain. How Twain says something like, "Like white people think that they're not savage. They, but they're as savage right. as the savages." I, that's a, that's not the quote. That's <laughs> the third one. It's something. That's the third quote. Okay, yeah. but it's something like that. Did you pull that one too?
1: I didn't pull it, but I was like, man, I know there was another Mark Twain thing. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. So, what's interesting is like it's Mark Twain as like the person versus Mark Twain's necessarily like his his authorship. Yeah, unlike yeah. with Conrad and Shakespeare, and then there's also Charles Dickens and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, the reference to Sherlock Holmes, and then with Charles Dickens, he compares Stanley's. Um, exaggerations about his um, life in the orphanage Too, he's like uh, he's obviously a fan of Charles Dickens Mm. he's like you know Oliver Twist in some ways (laughs) Um, oh yeah um, so there's yeah so there's these references to these well known (laughs) writers yeah yeah. well known writers Um, and I'm sure there are others that I didn't um, make note of but um, I, I found that really interesting too because like when i was thinking about um hawkschild's style here where he does make some attempts at you know metaphor and simile and trying to infuse some some style into it and like just but it do, it's not actually a narrative biography right it's just i feel like it's i mean it's it's got it's you know it's a linear Progression of ideas, but it's not narrative, and some it's it's not stylistically narrative, um, which is. Interesting too, because on the cover of the book it says, um, "From the Christian Science Monitor, an enthralling story full of fascinating characters, intense drama, high adventure, deceitful manipulations, courage, courageous truth telling, and splendid moral fervor. A work of history that reads like a novel." I was like, "It does not read like a novel." Um, <laughs> at yeah, all. that that's in, <laughs> to me. That, yeah,
0: that's in the a, a compliment in the eye of the beholder. I feel like. Cause I don't, yeah. I don't read a ton of histories, but I like. I guess I said at the beginning, we you know we dabble in some nonfiction, and I do occasionally, and I am finding it readable. I, novelistic is tough though, because they're clear. I don't as someone who just reads a lot of novels, like yeah, I don't. I don't know if I fully buy that. Like, compared to a textbook or a scholarly article on JSTOR, it's novelistic compared to those things. <laughs> how about that? Right. Like, I it, yeah, it's, <laughs> that's the eye of the beholder aspect of it, where it's just kind of like... I guess it depends on how often and what kind of histories you read. Um, yeah. I, I find some of the like charting of Stanley, how he found Livingston, that section, and then also some other kind of explorations and people who are trying to map the Congo River and things. There were some novelistic moments in that, but it's, yeah, I don't know. It is also just a dense history with a lot of primary sources and interpretations and analyses and comparisons and things. So it's, yeah, I don't know. I I think I'm aligned with you, but I, I can't say it's not novelistic at all, I guess, (laughs)
1: It's, it's yeah. I I think that for me, it's more like he's trying to make it more stylized than, than it actually is. Um, and I have a quote here really quickly from page 40. Um, if Leopold were a figure in fiction, his creator might at this point in the story, introduce a foil, a minor character whose fate would sound an ominous warning about where dreams of empire can lead. But Leopold already had such a character in his life, more appropriate to the role than one, a novelist could have invented. It was his sister. Um, so, again, like, so we have all these authors where he's, like, specifically mentioning certain, like, com- making comparisons between characters in the novels or stuff like that. And then here he's, like, blatantly comparing, like, Leopold's life to a story. Um, yeah. A, a story structure. So it's like, it, these are, to me, all of these things just means that he's he's very well read right um obviously but that he's trying to make it seem like a story in some ways like he he understands the elements of the stories he understands the elements of character and stuff um but that you know for me the the narrative aspects of his writing are just like falling to pieces in a lot of ways and i think this also ties into my my previous uh criticism of like his jumping to conclusions with the people involved, because he's yeah. treating them a lot of the time as almost characters, um, and so he's he he takes more license with specifically these people and and their motivations and and making comments about um, them them as people, but more of like a caricature rather than the complexities of, of actual humans.
0: Yeah. Well, he should have paid attention to his sister who, that was the, she was in Mexico, husband murdered, that was yeah. a colony, and drew, driven mad by it or something. Was she the one that yep. spent all her money on clothes, or was that a different, was that a daughter?
1: That was a daughter, yeah. Okay, gotcha. The, the eldest daughter, maybe? or the second elders
0: yeah his personal life seemed like a just disaster continuous series of disasters (laughs) yep um (laughs) any any illusions that you wanted to cover other than those any of them yeah any i mean conrad anything to say on that i know we kind of skimmed it there's so much to unpack
1: yeah I, i i enjoyed that chapter quite a bit actually um
0: He's got some quotes from um, Chinua Achebe in there about some of the critiques that the book – yeah, I don't know. To me, that will always be an important book. I think it was one of the ones that we read in – it must have been AP Lit, not AP Lang, because you wouldn't read a novel in Lit or uh, Lang. But no, I, yeah, and it just – I don't know. I found it such a compelling and brutal read at the time, and it really kind of opened my eyes to a more – I don't know, a more layered version of literature, something really dense and knotty, something that's like, I mean, it's quite a work that it's both, at least today, interpreted as like incredibly racist and then like incredibly critical of racism. Like it's, you can kind of do <laughs> yeah. both. It's, yeah, it's fascinating in that sense. Like I don't, it's also, you know, one of the most studied books um, in, in English classes and in English kind of literature. So that also makes it kind of fascinating. Were there any Conrad quotes you wanted to unpack or details
1: um, no, but I will. Um, I have it as part of the uh, the top three section oh, sure. where I, I talk a little bit about it. Gotcha.
0: Okay, let's save that for later. I'll do my motif. I couldn't think of a way to name this one and I thought about it for a little bit and just couldn't settle on something. I've got written down deals behind the scenes. You could also call it absentee rulership. You could call it people swaying things that are never in the thing. I don't not that's the least elegant way I could say it. <laughs> it's basically people who have a ton of control and have no direct contact or experience or even I mean obviously Leopold has profound investment in the Congo in the literal and financial sense but it's just sort of this idea of there's a lot of characters in the story Who do stuff without doing stuff Like in that sense you kind of have to Admire Stanley who is a horrific racist And an abuser and it seems like Just a murderer uh, the way he worked People and the way he beat his porters and like Yeah it seems like a horrific man With a twisted sense of What was scientifically right But like he did stuff like that guy Should have died a hundred times and never did (laughs) And it's like he literally (laughs) explored Most of Africa he's the first person Other than weren't there some There were people from the Arab world who did it first, who like, he said, there's no, I don't think they kept a record like Stanley did. So of course, Stanley gets all the credit, he publishes works and publishes journals. But he did, you know, cross Africa for the first time as a white man was like the first person to accomplish that at territory that he, you know, was uncharted at the time. And, you know, he was really, he really put himself at risk. And obviously, Uh, Not as much as the people he killed to do it Not as much as the porters he literally had Slaughtered to like get his Supplies where they needed to be and everything Um, But he's really the only Figure like that though like when you think about Everyone else and I'll pull some examples They're just puppet masters In the classic sense right they're pretty detached Pretty removed from these Grandiose schemes that they've got working And I I thought that was something to pick Up on or like an idea worth discussing Um, Let's talk through a couple examples Probably the the author's own summary of this effect is on page 46, which I'll read here it says if we take a step back and look at leopold at this moment we can imagine him the political equivalent of an ambitious theatrical producer he has organizational talent and the public's goodwill as proven by his successful geographical conference He is a special kind of capital the great public relations power of the throne itself he has a script the dream of a colony that has been running through his head since he was a teenager and he doesn't include this but like the moral component of that too you know we've got to civilize africa we have to bring civilization there yada yada but he has yet no stage, no cast. And then, of course, he gets his cast member, and that is Stanley, a person that he kind of exploits to his own ends. And I think, I don't know, do you find that metaphor compelling? I think it, it's, again, maybe one of the moments when the writing works, just in that it gives a pretty clear comparison and lets us understand Leopold's own role. A person who I have to assume, and I haven't read up to you and we're halfway, I have to assume he never goes there. I mean, there's no way, right?
1: Um, mm, he, no, I don't think so. He actually, he does meet with a chief. Uh, oh, okay. He, yeah, he never goes to uh, the Congo. There is a world fair in Belgium where they uh, bring over a bunch of people oh, from the Congo Gotcha. and he meets with one of the chiefs and the chief is like, um, oh, well, my people are, you know, they're, they're eating these snacks that people are handing them and they're getting tummy aches. So Leopold put up a sign that says, you know, do not feed. Oh. Like, like they're animals of course well uh, yeah that's in yeah. keeping
0: with the scientific uh, endeavor that they have embarked upon and their general world view that all that all lines up uh, it, well interesting okay I look forward to reading about that too but no I just I think that's the first place where and maybe this is why the framing came into my mind but it's like he has no interest in being an actor he wants to be the director which I don't know you could argue most leadership in organizations the size of a country are like that <laughs> but there is also something to be said for a ruler who has Even a modicum of experience or interest in like doing the things he's making people do What's the cliche about leadership, right? Don't tell someone to do something you wouldn't do that kind of a thing And so it's like this is rampant with people like that. This book is has many examples of people who um are kind of committing horrific things that other people above them don't maybe even fully know about. I think with Leopold, we can say he did know. <laughs> Obviously, he responded to the Williams accusations in public, so we know he he was thinking about it. Anyway, um, so there's that's one framing. Then Stanley becomes an important figure. Again, maybe not a, a sympathetic one or one we should admire, but Stanley becomes kind of Leopold's pawn out there in the field, right? Um, he talks about it on page 65. It says, ambitious as his and Stanley's plans were, Leopold was intent that they be seen as nothing more than philanthropy. The contracts Stanley made in his European staff signed forbade them to divulge anything about the real purpose of their work. Only scientific explorations are intended, Leopold assured a journalist. So again, there's some good historical work there because he must have found those contracts. So it's like, here's here's what he said legally versus here's what he told people in private. Like, that's a nice, pretty clear sense of what he was up to. Um, And then later it says... Oh, we talked about the organization name, but, uh, Stanley goes there. And then this is another kind of funny one. Um, as a smokescreen, the committee was still useful, and the king continued to refer to the committee as if it were functioning and as its uh, former shareholders, and not he alone, were funding Stanley and making decisions. Stanley himself did not find out about the committee's demise until more than a year after the fact. So it just that's another example of how there are these people that are kind of doing the work, so to speak, doing the—I mean the crimes and the work and the horrific brutality of the work, but that they themselves are being played in a way that they don't even understand. Right, like Mm -hmm. he's literally doing scientific, you know, quote unquote scientific exploration, and for the good of civilization. And in the background, like things are being manipulated and changed, and he has no idea.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And then Leopold can be like, "Well, uh, you see, I gave them this, but they're they're acting on their own, and I have nothing to do with like these actions because I'm not physically there. It's um." super sneaky maybe then as a as a work
0: if we want to condemn it well condemn but if we want to critique it as kind of a weak psychoanalysis i think is a kind of exploration of institutional behavior and like leadership political commercial whatever i do think it's holding up quite well maybe that's why my brain is glossing over some of the little rhetorical moves because i think i'm just kind of interested in the themes and like the examples are compelling me less so maybe the i don't know the writing of it or something. Um, One more example of this behind-the-scenes theatrical... I don't know. Okay, I'm running out of like adjectives today or nouns. <laughs> uh, production? I guess after gold production is kind of redundant. There you go. Yeah, nice. mm-hmm. <laughs> I was trying to think mm-hmm. of a word like exploitation, but uh, anyway, yes. Let's let's move on to one more example. Old Sanford, what a guy! Talk about a character study. The trust fund kid who failed at everything he ever did.
1: <laughs> um,
0: yep. <laughs> I, did, you, did you find Hothschild <laughs> maniacal in the sense of like he clearly wanted to document every failure and he must have gone to some lengths of research to find every failed business this man tried in his life just
1: everything uh,
0: man. at some point there is like a lengthy paragraph where he just outlines a bunch of them and is like here's every business he bought a warehouse that was like twice the size that it should have been just weird moves <laughs> but sanford doesn't yeah, and even like yeah.
1: with the congo and he's like got a steamboat there but it was like Commandeered and damaged when it got commandeered, and he just like failed at it. <laughs> like yeah. even in the Congo. Though
0: critically, <laughs> he has one major success, which is to lobby Washington uh, in America, and because he's American, I should have said all that, um, and to convince the president to kind of formally recognize these associations and to recognize Belgium's. A claim to the Congo, authority over it, I guess we'd say. It's a little ambiguous. Um, this is also where he get, we get the quote with it, where they use both the names in the same quote. Hilarious. But um, this is some things about Sanford. Sanford completely agreed. Although he was born in Connecticut, once he invested in the South, he quickly assimilated the send-them-back-to-Africa feelings of white businessmen there. The Congo could serve, he had said, as an outlet for the enterprise and ambition of our colored people in more congenial fields than politics. To the end of his life, he would promote this new canon for more modern israelites is a its canon uh, which he would be the ground to draw the gathering electricity from the black crowds spreading over the southern states sanford and morgan hit it off splendidly and they talk more about those things and kind of he hosts people he has parties he owns some southern i think florida property that he has parties at and you know what do they say greases the palms or shakes the hands and of course gives a
1: lot of oranges that's right
0: sends gifts <laughs> and reminds people you know the good work they're doing in the congo and of course he's got this explicitly you know racially racist superiority racially tinged motivations and stuff i mean that's a direct quote so that's um you know, telling about his own role, but he's also just an incredible failure of a man who made these couple massive decisions and really swayed things and got sort of formal governmental approval behind the congo or the the belgium in the congo and i just found him too a compelling figure i know again up till now we hadn't really talked about him but it's just incredible the sway that this person had on world historical events and i think that was also where i just really got into the narrative aspect of it like who is this person where is he from how did he come to power what's you know what did he accomplish or what was his role um any what are your thoughts on sanford
1: I thought it was interesting, too, uh, going back to the idea of, like, the, the theater of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that they, when he was lobbying for King Leopold, the communication between Leopold and Stanford was um, actually through code words. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? I forgot about that. So Yeah, so that also, the, the um, so he can, again, Leopold can, can protect himself and be like, I don't know what you're talking about. We were talking about Emile, yeah. which was one of the words. Not France. It's Emile. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like as a as a person, you feel bad for Sanford too because he makes um, some comments like he says that Leopold knows how to like just stroke his ego and that's all he really needs. He doesn't like allow him any kind of uh, real position in the Congo or anything like that. It doesn't give him any favors. The only thing is just he's like, hey, you're like my number one dude and like you're so smart and wise and just like, you know, stuff like that. Uh, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Flattery go, from man. a sovereign works on everybody.
1: I mean, this <laughs> yeah. is. I'm,
0: I'm reaching here. I'm doing a big old reach, so go ahead and just either ignore this, you know, light comparison, and false analysis, whatever. But isn't it telling enough that like, people in America are still kind of obsessed with British royal family? There's a real allure to it. There's a real kind of these ancient aristocratic powers, as much as we, being Americans, of course, rebellious as we are, you know, condemn them and everything. There's a, I mean, it's it's caught up in celebrity a bit. It's caught up in that. And just, there is a real sort of factor there of, you know, you just want the approval of this grand powerful person, this wealthy the benefactor figure this um yeah there's kind of a, a nobility respect to it in the interpretation these people have i have no respect or interest in these people myself but i think that's such a yeah there's such a power to that and it's clear that he can ex- exert it leopold yeah um final quote to kind of hit this motif home though i think this might also be a reach but i just figured we should talk about it here wasn't sure what, where else to include it Obviously, the people on the ground in the Congo know of the horrors, though, of course, only Williams was maybe bold enough to outline all of the horrors and atrocities and kind of bring them to light. But there are people, obviously, there are quite a lot of workers, white Europeans doing the deeds, like doing the work, committing the crimes, doing the the bad things. Um, Talk about a middle school way to say it, but sure, it works. (laughs) The bad stuff. But anyway, um, this I thought also was not quite a behind-the-scenes deal type of thing, but let's talk about euphemisms briefly. Um, This is from 130. Always, however, the slave system was bedecked with euphemisms used even by officers in the field. Two boats just arrived with Sergeant Lentz and 25 volunteers from Anguetra in chains. Two men drowned trying to escape. So think of that sentence. (laughs) In the same sentence, you call these people volunteers. Tears, then you say they're in chains. Already a bit of a complication, I would say, wouldn't you? That's um, maybe not a full-on contradiction, but it's it's close to a paradox. You know, it's pretty close. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then, of course, the, the real, the kicker is two people literally killed themselves trying to get out of this. Uh, that does not sound like volunteerism to me.
1: Nope. <laughs> Definitely and I yeah, not.
0: And I know this isn't a deal behind the scenes, so I know I'm kind of sneaking this in the motif I wanted to discuss, but... In a, in a way, it is, it is a mental blinding of oneself, and so it's clear that in some ways, in order to operate in the Congo, the people working there had to, you know, accept the program and accept all the rhetoric and the moral goals and the science of it, whatever. But, like, even when you're right in front of it, you can still, I guess... I don't know, hide it from yourself or something like turn your eye away from it. Or um, again, I know this isn't quite fitting the motif because these people were on the ground, like doing the doing the crimes, but there is a sort of mental, I don't know, curtain closing that happens if you're going to use a euphemism like that like to write a sentence like that is uh there's some mental blinding happening there you can't you can't write such a paradoxical insane sentence and then truly like believe it right or or maybe that is the problem that he did truly believe the these volunteers two of them just killed themselves how strange you know i thought they wanted to be here well oh well you know yeah
1: yeah yeah that um I I found that one kind of ironic as well and then later um there's also to to tie in uh with the boots on the ground kind of like hiding certain things one of the mm-hmm. um one of the like managers of one of the posts oh yeah um like berates them um for writing down because they have to like keep a tab of like what is being transported what's being traded and he like goes at them because um the number of guns and ammunition listed was, um, it was accurate, but he was mad because it was accurate because they're trying to hide the fact that it is a a, essentially you know, like a a war area where they're just you know, murdering a bunch of people, so um, there again you have that boots on the ground word some people obviously are aware um, but they also are are hiding and and making the you know trying to manipulate right. the scene to make it seem Less deadly than it is.
0: Another good shadow kind of smokescreen play was when Leopold wrote at some point about opening schools. Like, oh, it's clear, you know, we've explored this continent a lot, huh? That people really need to be educated. Like, there's a lot of kids out here that just they have no future and no goals. Now huh? we got to educate them. And so there's kind of this outline to create. You know, like we'll do a job school and a medicine school and a military school. And uh, which one did they build? Only the military one, <laughs> just because they needed a labor force for their you know little army that they had. To assembled and so yeah i mean that, that's another place where the historical record is uh very useful because i'm sure those things are like, well documented like you know there's just no evidence that they ever built any other type of school or institution like they just needed quick soldiers for their army you know and so forced labor and obviously train um but there was also a section two we're veering off topic now but that's fine <laughs> there was a section two about how they trained of course many people from the Congo, um, natives to the Congo, to, you know, control and beat and submit or be sub- forced submission upon, what? what's the phrase, <laughs> upon other people, like, of course, you. this is another comparison point you can make to other points in history, but you have to at some point Train the people that you're trying to control to train them to control themselves essentially and there that he goes on a long kind of point or tangent Observing how that happened as well. So just I don't know again I know my motifs really run off the rails here, but it seems like there's a common thread here Which is just sort of this smoke screen play this obfuscation this like distancing yourself from the thing that you're actually doing It's like a lie to yourself lie to others lie to you know, whoever it takes to get this thing done um any thoughts mm-hmm. on these ideas? Uh,
1: no, yeah, but that's that's a huge. I think from the very introduction, he he's he sets it up as like a, a stage, as a theater mm-hmm. for Leopold. Yeah, so,
0: yeah, yeah. A large figure. We'll see what the second part. It is just two parts, right? Yes. Okay. We'll see what the second part reveals further about, it, especially because I'm assuming it will track Leopold until his death. So I'm curious to see at his end of life stages what he'll. Yeah, if he has, like, any reflections, maybe some speeches he gave. I don't know. I'm curious to see what he makes of his um, his legacy of, you know genocidal murder and everything uh, shall we end with a yeah. list Amanda let's end on a well I don't know if it'll be a light now it depends what goes into the list <laughs> let's end, let's end <laughs> with the list though this is our final segment of every book club part one uh, and we've gone straightforward here I think appropriately so for any historical work this is a great top three so you've chosen well uh, and today's list that we're going to make is going to be top three facts that I just didn't know before <laughs> and there's a lot of them there's a myriad things we could pick from here so no shortage of topics and ideas you made the topic Right, you chose this top three facts that I didn't know. So let's take yours first. Um, your number three.
1: Yeah, um, just in general, I didn't even know about like I knew that there were atrocities in um, Africa, but I didn't know specifically about the Congo. So this is all new information for me, just mm-hmm. in general. Um, but um, I said that. Uh, One of the the facts that I didn't know before that I was surprised by was um, the extent to which Leopold and other leaders at the time manipulated the media and the masses. Like, I just didn't think about... Like back then, like when I think of like propaganda and stuff like that, it for me because we studied it so extensively when we studied World War II stuff, of course, it comes back again automatically, right? (laughs) (laughs) But actually, even before that, you had leaders who were manipulating the masses and and the media, and Mm -hmm. yeah, so it's just like really surprised, I suppose, by by my ignorance of that.
0: Well, and even this is its own complex topic about the history of publishing and printing and distributing and I don't know, literacy stuff, whatever big topics. But I will say that one kind of, I think oversimplification Americans make, and we're all kind of guilty of it is I think we often believe that early published things like pamphlets were always for the good where it's like the federal's papers or that dude, John Locke and that other guy, uh, you know, the, who's the guy, the Frenchman in America. I forget. Of course, it's like, I remember the ideas, but not the names. Yeah. Or no, not Rousseau. The, the, oh shoot he, like, was boots on the ground. Like, he came to America and studied the, the culture, and then he wrote about it. That eh, it doesn't matter. All these people. <laughs> but we often think of these as these kind of, oh, it's, you know, you get them in the hands, you tell the truth, freedom, it's the, you know, it's like a rallying cry. But, you know, the opposite sure. can equally be true, which is like, oh, that wasn't true, or oh, that's not for noble purposes or to establish some ideal. It's just to manipulate or get a point across, or you want to promote your new association, you want to promote your, the kind of noble morality of your conference, like, okay. Yeah. Then publish about it and write about it and just tell people that's what it's that's what's going on. Don't worry about it. And so I think there's a real contrast there, too, for Americans. Yeah. 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 Early publication propaganda. It's a great pick. I'm going to go with Tipu Tip, who this is my number three, uh, who is an Arab slaver who also himself at the time owned like a huge chunk of the eastern Congo. As, As far as it can be defined, it's hard to define at the time. But I yeah. do think that I'm fascinated by this or was fascinated by this example, because a huge moral component to Leopold's propaganda and campaign and even throughout all of Europe was the anti-slave rhetoric, because at that point slavery yeah. was outlawed, of course, and like banned. And yeah, there was all this hand-wringing about how evil it was. And at the time, in the Arab world, there was still slavery in some you know regions and territories, even Turkey is an example given. And so, it's just so, of course, perfectly rich and ironic that Leopold makes a big deal with this Tipu Tip, who is a wealthy, kind of successful slaver, and he is happy to make deals with him. He has no issue, no qualms behind the scenes again, like making agreements and making arrangements with this. So, it's just that double-faced public versus private thing I was trying to get at earlier with the motif of just, yeah, you have this rhetoric in public, but then in private, it's like, well, look, we'll make deals with anybody as long as I own as much of the Congo as possible. I don't care. So... No qualms there, and I, of course, didn't had no idea who that person was. I frankly didn't even really know that at the time Arab slavers had made inroads into Africa like that. I, I don't know; it was all kind of new to me. So,
1: yeah, that, I I had no idea about that either. So that's a good one. Yeah,
0: are number two. Um,
1: my. My number two, which might be surprising, um, I did not realize that Heart of Darkness is not just a figurative work. Mm -hmm. I did not realize that Conrad himself had actually gone to the Congo and had actually experienced it and that it was based on an actual person or actual people. Mm -hmm. Um, I just thought that it was... Yeah, you know, because the way we studied it it's it's we only look at the you know the figurative stuff we look at yeah, yeah. the analysis aspect but we don't like i didn't know the history necessarily behind that um so that whole chapter was really fascinating to me and and i was just like wow like i have a whole new level of appreciation for heart of darkness now yeah
0: no <laughs> I, it's it's incredibly insightful and Uh, This is I'll give him his credit here for doing a kind of an overview summary without oversimplifying. But the way he summarizes the study of the book is pretty accurate, because I think most most kind of high school level AP class analyses of the book are very much in the psychology and the symbolism of things. And then also he mentions like Victorian era morals and there's some other stuff you could look into. I think when I read it, it was yeah heavily archetypal, symbolic. And then also we did do some kind of like id super ego type jargon Freudian stuff with it too Mm -hmm. because it's kind of like as he goes deeper into the forest like what does that represent anyway and yeah there's some like pretty simple archetypal readings that hold up Um, of course it's a complex work like I said because you don't have to analyze it like that it's very rich either you know kind of however you attack the book and decide to read it which is interesting but no yeah it's um I don't think I knew any of the specifics either, except that he traveled widely, because Conrad was kind of a famous, like, he sailed for a while and did some world traveling. But the specificity, right, the things from his journals, like, noting that the the heads thing that he would have seen in a magazine, probably, like, there's all these kinds of little points that maybe he assumes too much, Hot Child, but there's fascinating crossovers.
1: Yeah. Between real
0: life and the book, so yeah fascinating stuff my number two is the life of george washington williams did you know who this person was before this book
1: no i did not me neither so there
0: you go I i don't really have much more to say right it's i've already kind of talked at length about his role and what he his kind of you know noble approach and his honesty and investigative work in the congo and how unique it was and important and then ultimately not not pointless of course nothing done in such an correct altruistic way it could be pointless but it, it just didn't work how he thought it disillusioned him and it didn't have the grand effect he had hoped um but mm-hmm. no i found yeah i found his kind of i don't know martyrdom is that it probably goes too far but uh, yeah his life fascinating and yeah just everything about him nothing specific i guess i'm using kind of a big picture one there but yeah i thought it was a great inclusion and brought some life to this topic too personal
1: yeah and and it also points to like how how ignored he was too because of his race um, and his lack of status, right? In society, and not and, even a colonel. Yeah, like come on, dude! Damn it! Why'd you have to
0: lie about that? No, you gave them such an opening. Damn it! Yeah, yeah, lying about where you went to college. I mean, who's that guy in the news? That Republican from New York, the guy who just keeps comically lying i mean it's you know obviously these people don't these people despite our internet age age of information that doesn't go away i guess (laughs) despite the (laughs) rampant documentation of the modern age like you still find this uh happening so yeah fascinating and your number one a great (laughs) pick mine would have yeah this is a great pick
1: um mine i i did not know Uh, like i i i know um, like uh, generally what cubism is like the the art movement right picasso uh, but i did not know that it actually came from african artwork specifically is it the 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 cuba tribe that was oh like...
0: perhaps you know i've forgotten the names by now i'm struggling yeah. through this whole episode man i'm clinging on for dear life with all the names <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's but just yeah. the fact of it is fascinating
1: Right? I was just like, what? Yeah. Um, so I, I appreciated that he included that little tidbit there. I was, yeah.
0: And there's some really good light. I mean, I don't even know if we'd call this art criticism. It's more like art description. But there's some good light mm-hmm. descriptions of how in the African art that you can see for inspiration, the same th- Parts are exaggerated it's the eyes are often bulging and big it's just, you know yeah. it looks like cubism looks basically <laughs> right um, disproportionate body parts like you know displacement of limbs in certain ways and like abstract shapes and stuff instead of clear you know realism and no yeah it's it's a pretty light point but you're right that one totally i that was kind of like you know my ears smoked a little reading that i was like whoa who knew Mm -hmm. Great one. Yep. My number one is the account of the missionary Carl Theodore Anderson. Do you remember this guy? No. He is a missionary from, I think, Finland or Sweden who is in the Congo at the time and he approaches an enormous encampment Of people assuming they are the Belgian army but it's the rebel Group who had taken up arms yeah. against the Belgian army yeah. and so He at first believes he is for sure dead And is certainly going to be killed um, Because the group at the time was kind of saying You know well, we just need to kill any white person We see or find and that's you know We're, we're doing our rebellion against all whites um, Though through some discussion He he is spared and it's revealed That like he is a, a true missionary with a, That purpose and he, he was teaching some people at the time and there's um, sounds like they got some accounts from those people saying like he didn't hit us or treat us poorly he was you know trying to help us anyway but what he wrote back I think was the I thought was just such a great revelation obviously it's not like Williams because Williams took it to the public sphere and really tried to like enact some change here and really get the message out but Anderson's account just cracked me up because he said things like I mean obviously these clear-eyed things that I would agree with which is just like well you know these people are treated monstrously it's about Time they got some revenge. You know, it's kind of like who could <laughs> yeah. look at their lives and blame them? They're being starved and enslaved and beaten and killed and treated like you know animals and in this barbarous way. And so I think his summary, because he has the letters and gives the quotes, it's basically just he wrote back like, "Yeah, they seem to be doing you know the right thing, I guess." And this is from a Christian missionary. <laughs> um, and so I found that whole little mini story arc just fascinating, and his letter too. I thought was pretty insightful and. Yeah, again, not humorous in the in the literal sense, but just kind of in its clarity coming from a missionary to side with the rebels like that, I thought was Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of irony yeah. to it, I guess.
1: For sure. Yeah. I yeah, as soon as you said the the rebel camp, walking into the rebel camp, I was like, Oh, now I remember who this guy is. <laughs> Poor dude. Yeah, gosh, it's these are some of the
0: lines from the quote. I, I was just I feel like I really butchered that summary of his letter just now, so I just want to read some quotes. Always trying to be as accurate as I can, and I feel like that was a sloppy summary. But here's some quotes: A man sows what he reaps. In reality, the state is the true source of these uprisings. It is strange that people who claim to be civilized they think that they can treat their fellow man, even though he is a different color, any which way. Without a doubt, one of the most disreputable officials is the late Mister Rommel. One should not speak ill of the dead, but I must simply mention that. That smaller matters to prove that the unrest has been justified and then he lists out his you know problems and then finally so can anyone truly feel surprised that the discontent has finally come to the surface um nizansu the leader of the uprising and rommel's assassin only wanted to become the engelbrecht of the congo and the gustav wassa of his people his followers are as loyal to him as swedes were to their leaders in those times so pretty clear-eyed too of anderson to make the historical comparison of like well yeah we threw off we threw off uh, despots in our time we've rebelled against leaders leaders that we thought were unjust and were treating us horribly and were exploiting us. And so it's like, yeah, that's what's happening here. Why wouldn't it happen? And so, yeah, I don't know. There was something in his writing, too. It was very concise and honest and everything and, you know, compared against some of the other rhetoric of the primary sources that are pulled. I don't know. Yeah, something about that account just like perked me up. And I was like, what a fascinating little story to include about this mm-hmm. missionary who just uh, stumbled into the wrong place or the right place, yeah. I guess. Yeah Excellent And uh, those are our top threes Facts we didn't know before I went person heavy You went facts heavy Good A good split then (laughs) 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 My facts were just people I'd never heard about (laughs) In their lives But um, yeah That's excellent Any other facts that uh, You want to throw in real quick Onto the pile
1: um no Uh, everything everything is just new to
0: me with with this stuff so it is hard to pick right when the topic is yeah when it's like what i knew before was a two-sentence encyclopedia version and now you're doing the book version (laughs) 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 so yeah all pretty all pretty fascinating um do we cover in enough detail the actual atrocities i feel like i said that word 10 times but i don't know at some point I, I, don't, I think the only interesting angle we didn't really cover was the fact that and Hosschild has to mention this a lot that there's just no African accounts or there's so few of them at the time of how they right. felt and what their thoughts were but it's I, you know the quotes he gets it's we can extrapolate or generalize it's confusion and terror basically I mean it's not that hard to imagine it's people who don't really understand what's going on and then also just don't want to be slaughtered and killed and enslaved right. so it's not yeah, I guess maybe we should have addressed that a little more, but that's okay. We covered a million other points instead. Any um, final thoughts on the style or the book so far, King Leopold's Ghost?
1: Now, I'm wondering uh, what the second part is going to be about. It's uh, The second part is the, what is it called, uh, A King at Bay. So is it these so it's like the first half just the background information about the Congo and the second half is going to focus on the downfall of Leopold do you think I or? think so I think it was
0: going to track to his death if I had to guess and so it'll probably cover I don't know if in his lifetime he kind of lost control of it or just kind of had to seed it or give it up or, or whatever abandoned his his mission there so maybe it'll track that but I don't fully under not understand I don't fully know the dates or years when the Congo was kind of lost or reclaimed by by chiefs or native peoples there so i don't know i truly don't i'm interested to see i I can say that if leopold in the later years was losing it was becoming disillusioned then hoschild is going to absolutely destroy him (laughs) Uh, if he in any way falters in his mission clarity or purpose and he makes stupid errors um i yeah i have to imagine that hoschild is going to revel in any mistakes (laughs) so i suppose we'll see what kind of you know bad colonialism he gets up to um, in the second half. Yeah, no, I I too am curious. I wonder if it'll go deep into the 1900s. I'm not certain.
1: Mm, yeah.
0: All right. And any other final... I, I know we gave our opinions very broadly, but any other final broad opinions on the work so far?
1: Uh, Nope.
0: You find it burdensome?
1: Not burdensome. It's just I, I find myself, like, exhausted after I yeah. read, like, half a chapter. I'm like, man, I need to take a break because it's just so... For me, it's it's interesting information, but presented in such a dry manner yeah, <laughs> in a lot yeah. of ways.
0: I've so, got to think yeah. more about that in the back half, because I've, again, been kind of speed, not speeding through, but have found it quite frictionless. So I've got to start paying a little more attention to the own kind of the, the style, the syntax and everything to see... Yeah, just think more about that in the back half. Okay, let's wrap this. I'm getting long-winded at this point, Amanda. Uh, we have social media accounts, <laughs> dear listeners, on Instagram and Facebook, and that is at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word. So if you can follow us there, it helps a ton. You know, we promote our book podcast episodes there and keep you up to date on what we're doing. Um, any podcast platform you're listening to this on, if you could rate and review the show that also helps a ton. So five-star ratings with a brief review or description, it uh, attracts more people to the show. And I think it's how those algorithms churn out recommendations. So helps a ton. We appreciate you listening through all the way as ever. We'll be back with part two of King Leopold's ghost next Friday. If you're listening to this on its release date, and if you're just in the feed listening to this, then, Hey, check the feed. Cause part two might already be posted. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages.